Good morning. Good to see you this morning. It is good to see you. I'm Jimmy Evans. I'm senior elder at Trinity Fellowship in Amarillo, and Pastor Robert is in Amarillo preaching this morning. We did a marriage seminar this weekend in Amarillo uh, that we recorded for television, and uh, it is called The Blessed Marriage, and Pastor Robert came in, and he did a phenomenal job teaching about finances, and uh, I taught on other issues, and so I'm here this weekend speaking. He's in Amarillo. It is good to be here. And Pastor Robert asked me to speak on the subject of marriage. Last time I was here, I spoke on marriage. I'm actually going to be back here in the fall doing a marriage seminar, and I hope uh, we'll be talking to you more about that in the future, but hope a lot of you will be able to attend. So anyway, if you have your Bible there, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 14, and uh, we're going to talk this morning on the subject of marriage. Let me tell you this little story as we begin this morning. Kind of a touching little story about marriage. It says the woman's husband had been slipping in and out of a coma for several months. Yet she stayed by his bedside every single day. One day when he came to, he motioned for her to come closer. As she sat by him, he whispered, eyes full of tears. You know what? You have been with me through all the bad times. When I got fired, you were there to support me. When my business failed, you were there. When I got shot, you were by my side. When we lost the house, you stayed right here. When my health started failing, you were still by my side. You know what? What, dear? She asked gently, smiling as her heart began to fill with warmth. He said emotionally, I think you're bad luck. Isn't that a tender story? Now, we're going to talk about marriage this morning. Now, I want to, I've been preaching a series of messages at home called Our Secret Paradise. I'm talking about marriage, and I'm talking about the fact that God created marriage in a place called Eden. And Eden means pleasure and delights. God created marriage to be a paradise. That's why he created it in that paradise. And many people don't experience that today. And I'm preaching this series of messages to help people understand how you can live in a stable and satisfying marriage for the rest of your life. That you're, you're able to experience your dream. People have the dream of a happy and satisfying marriage. Many people aren't experiencing that dream. And so I want to talk to you today. The first message that I have brought in that series called Our Secret Paradise is called The Secret of Building a Lasting Marriage. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. How can you know that you can be married for the rest of your lives and not become a statistic? How can you know that your marriage is going to last? And for many people who aren't married today, many people are living together because they're so fearful of getting married and then divorcing or having the marriage end in failure. Uh, many young people today are absolutely terrified of marriage. And it's not because we don't want to be married. It's not because we don't want to experience the, the fullness and happiness of marriage. It's just because we don't want to fail. And so I want to talk to you this morning about the secret of building a lasting marriage. And Jesus is the one, actually, that teaches us the secret. It's Luke 14, and let's begin reading in verse 25. And it says, Great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Let's just stop right there and say, That doesn't sound like the most family-friendly statement you've ever heard. Now, obviously, Jesus is for us loving our parents and honoring our parents and our, 
our wives and husbands and children and all that. But understand this, is Jesus is making a comparative statement. When he says you have to hate your father and mother, what Jesus is saying is, if we're going to have a relationship now, and if this relationship is going to succeed, I'm not going to compete with all the other people in your life. In comparison to my relationship, you're going to have to put everyone else away and keep them in their proper place. The relationship is not going to work if I'm equal or lesser to your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, anybody else in your life. It's just not going to work. So let's just get things straight right up front. That's what Jesus is doing is he's creating realistic expectations about the relationship. The next thing he says, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, let's just stop right there. Jesus had not died on the cross yet. To us, the cross is a symbol of the love of God and how Jesus paid for our sins. He had not died on the cross. So when Jesus turns to this multitude and and says to them, if you're going to follow me now, you're going to have to bear your cross. They only had one reference point of a cross. And that is when they walked up and down the roads of Israel, they saw people crucified on crosses outside of their cities and towns because the Romans dominated and occupied Israel during that time. And the Romans were terrible. They were, they were just an evil empire and they would come in and crucify family members, friends, people that you knew right outside the city gates just to let everybody know, you mess with us, you're going to get hurt. And they were intimidating the Israeli society. Crucifixion meant pain. It meant punishment. It meant, it meant something bad is going to happen to you. So Jesus is saying, number one, I will not compete with the other humans in your life. If we're going to have a relationship that's going to work, I've got to be first. Number two, this relationship will produce pain. If you think that this relationship with me will not be painful, go back. It's not going to work. You will have to bear your cross. It doesn't mean it's painful all the time. It means it could be painful. It could mean rejection. It could mean persecution. It could mean being excluded from some groups you want to be included in. It could be somebody says something to you that really hurts you because you're a Christian and you identify with me. It could be that somebody puts you to death. That means it's going to have to happen. It means you're going to have to bear your cross. You've got to be ready for pain. So Jesus is just creating realistic expectations in the minds of the people that could become his followers. Then he says, which of you... Intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000, or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and ask conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let me just say this morning, the number one cause of divorce is disappointment. It's not money. It's not sex. It's not communication. It's not children. The number one reason why people divorce is because they die of a broken heart. They're just tremendously disappointed. They enter into marriage with a certain set of expectations and then those expectations don't come true, and they die of a broken heart. It's, it's why people divorce. Every divorce is an act of ultimate disappointment. 
and brokenheartedness. And when Jesus is beginning a relationship, remember he has multitudes following him. Those multitudes don't all become disciples. And Jesus isn't a salesman sitting there trying to convince everyone to follow. Jesus is an honest God who is turning to people and he wants them to follow, but he's not going to let them follow based on false expectations. And he turns to them and says, it won't work if I'm not first and it won't work if you're not willing to endure some pain. In fact, if you're not willing to invest everything you have in this relationship, it's not going to work. And so the thing about Jesus is we may not like the fact that he tells us the harsh realities up front, but anyone who follows Jesus never dies of a broken heart. You knew right up front what it was going to take. You knew right up front that it was going to cost a lot and it could mean pain. Satan, on the other hand, is a slick salesman. And Satan comes to you and he sells a life of sin and a life of compromise. Come on, if you do this, I'll give you everything. You'll never be disappointed. You're going to be happy. And Satan disappoints every follower he has. Because he lies to you up front, builds false expectations in your mind, and it's disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. I'm just telling you this. I would rather be in a relationship with a person who told me everything up front than a slick salesman who's going to break my heart. Anybody agree with that? The secret of a lasting relationship is entering in with realistic expectations. It's God's way. God's way is I'm going to tell you the truth up front. Then you can decide whether you want to follow me or not. Many people, when they get married, they have such deeply embedded romantic misconceptions and false expectations that they're set up from the very beginning for a broken heart. See, many years ago, I don't know who started these vows, but they're good vows. Many people who still get married today, and many of you who are married here, you said these kinds of vows when you got married. You said things like, for better or worse, richer or poor, in sickness or in health. You know why we say those vows? We say those vows to prepare ourselves for the fact that there's going to be some worse. There's going to be some sickness. There's going to be some poorer, probably. Is We're preparing ourselves for the marriage, and we're saying, you know something, I am entering into this marriage with realistic expectations, and I'm prepared for whatever happens. But understand, many people who stand, you know, and they get married in front of a preacher or justice peace or whatever, and they say those kinds of vows what they're thinking to themselves is we're going to be the exception. There ain't going to be no worse in our family. There ain't going to be no poor. There ain't going to be no sicker. We're, we're going to have the marriage of our dreams. And for us, it's going to be happily ever after. And so we, we still, in spite of the vows, we retain these expectations that we have. And so I want to tell you this morning, and, and I don't want to disappoint you, you can have the marriage of your dreams. I just want to tell you this morning how you can have it. I'm not telling you that marriage isn't wonderful. Marriage is a paradise. Marriage is, is phenomenal. But I want you to understand this morning how you can enter into marriage properly and experience the marriage of your dreams and not die of a broken heart. Let me talk to you this morning about the two unchangeable realities of marriage. I want to tell you two things that are absolutely true, that if you'll understand these things, that you can go forward and succeed in marriage. Number one, we all have hurts from our past, quirks in our personalities, and ignorance concerning the opposite sex that only marriage will cure, and it will take many years for the process to be completed. You've got, you've got issues in your lives. You've got pain from your past, quirks in our personalities. Don't look at your spouse and say amen, but we do. Is Only marriage will cure that, and it will take many years for that process to be accomplished. My wife and I celebrated our 31st anniversary two weeks ago. And, uh, I mean, we... So I'm just saying... 
you know, I've been married. Some of you have been married longer than that, but but we have been married for a long time. And I can just tell you, we both had hurts from our past, quirks in our personality, ignorance concerning the opposite sex in marriage has helped to heal that. Now, let me say this. I read a I read a study the other day. People are waiting longer to get married today in America than ever before in American history. The average woman in America today gets married at 25 years old. The average man is waiting till he's 27 years old to get married. And in this report that I read, here is what the researcher said was the reason why people are waiting so long to get married. And he said, after you know studying a lot of the people and interviewing them, he said the reason that people are waiting so long to get married is because they're fearful of ma- marriage and they're waiting to meet their soulmate. Is they're, they're just scrutinizing everyone who comes by. They're, they're being very, very careful about dating and all that kind of stuff, and especially before they make a commitment, and they're looking for their soulmate. Can I tell you, and that, that's great. You know, I mean, we, we need to be careful. We need to, we need to marry a believer. We need to marry somebody of the opposite sex. I didn't have to say that a few years ago, but I'm going to say it right now. Is, you know, we need to prepare before marriage and all that. It's important to be careful about who you marry. I'm not diminishing that in any way. But I want you to hear something about your soulmate. And, and that is, they're messed up. Your perfect soulmate from God, they're messed up. They've got problems. And, and I get a kick out of some of these Christian, single Christian women, and they're looking for Jesus Jr. You know, they're, they're every guy that walks up is just like, if he has any problem, no, you're not it. You know, and men are looking for like a baptized Betty Crocker or something. You know, they're just, they're looking for, they're just looking for this perfect woman, this perfect man. There's no such thing. And let me tell you why, when you're praying for your perfect soulmate, that God sends you somebody messed up. And that is, it's gotta be a good match. You're messed up. I'm messed up. We're all messed up this morning. There's no such thing as a person not messed up. But a lot of us believe that somehow somebody's going to ride up on the white horse and get off and they're just going to be so absolutely perfect. No, they're messed up. I don't care how shiny their teeth are. I don't care how good they look. I'm telling you, they're messed up. And that's just the truth. And so just get prepared for the fact that whoever you marry, they're messed up. No such thing as somebody not messed up. Because, see, if you believe, that there are things, such, uh, is such a thing as a person not messed up, then you get married, you know they're messed up. And then Satan's in your ear saying, you made a mistake. Your soulmate is out wandering the streets right now, pining for your company, wondering where you are, and you're stuck with Satan. Or his ex-wife, whatever the case may be. No? No, if, if you prayed and you were careful and you married the perfect person that God had for you, they're messed up. That's just simply the way that it is. That's reality. Deal with that. I'm just saying that's the way it's going to be. Number two reality of marriage is marriage is a healing journey. When you enter into it properly, we are designed by God to heal each other. Marriage is a... So you're saying, I'm going to marry somebody messed up. You you did marry somebody messed up. You got married. And if you're going to get married... You need to be careful. You need to be prayerful. You need to prepare before marriage. But they're messed up. Just get ready for that. And and before you get married, you're thinking, you know, I'm oh, I married the right person. I mean, this person's just so great. But after you get married, you know, you just thought you saw their problems before. You're going to see all their problems later. I know one woman, and she said, she said, I thought I married just the most wonderful man in the world. He was an athlete. He was intelligent. He was successful. And several weeks after we got married, I looked out the front door, and he was banging the lawnmower against a tree in the front yard. 
And I began to see the angriest man I've ever met in my life. And I called my mother and said, come and get me. He's crazy. Today, he's a pastor. He's a wonderful man. But after they got married, she began to see issues in his life that she didn't see before. But understand this. Every man is anointed by God to heal his wife. And every woman is anointed by God to heal her husband. See, when, when Karen and I got married, we, we saw each other's problems and we began to attack each other. We both had the misconception that somehow that the wedding was going to fix everything. We saw issues in each other before we got married, but we thought somehow there's something magical about the wedding and after the wedding everything would be fixed. But that wasn't the case. The case was as we woke up one day after marriage and realized we were both really messed up and we began to attack each other. And one day we, we, we realized before we divorced, we were that close to a divorce. Before we divorced, God intervened in our marriage and we realized we're doing something very wrong and we need to change. For the last 27 years of, of our marriage, we have been each other's healers. God has used the reason. It's the secret of intimacy. It's the secret of love. The reason. Why do I love my wife so much after 31 years of marriage? Why do I have such a tremendous affection for Karen? It's because she healed me. In spite of my problems, in, in spite of all my quirks and ignorance, Karen has acted as God's agent in my life to heal me more than anyone else except for Jesus himself. Why does Karen love me so much? Because I've healed her. I have been God's agent. You realize in Ephesians 5 it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That word, Christ, it didn't say as Jesus loved the church. It used his title. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. The word means the anointed one. You love your wives as the anointed one. The healer loves the church. You nourish her. You cherish her. The deepest wounds and problems that I have ever seen in a woman are wounds that come from being rejected and put down and not valued. Women have a need to feel esteemed and valued and honored and secure. And a loving, righteous, Christ-like man can heal any woman. And you look at your wife and you say, well, she's this and she's this and she's this and she's this. Listen, you can attack her all you want to for her quirks, believing that there's some other woman out there that doesn't have problems. And I'm just telling you, that's just wrong. All women and all men are messed up. Or you can look at your wife and understand there may be something wrong with her, but I've got the power of God to heal it. And the secret of how this marriage is going to work is not me attacking her for her problems. It's for me using the anointing on my life to speak destiny into her life. See, I love the story of this man. I heard this years ago, and I hope I tell it right. I love the story of this little island, and it was a very, very poor island. Uh, and there was this man who had a daughter, and uh, he abused her verbally, very mean to her. He was a poor man, and he was no good. And uh, it's a small island. Everybody knew each other. And there was a, a man on the island who was extremely wealthy. And the island was so poor that they really didn't use currency to trade. They used animals or produce or whatever they had. And when you bought a wife, you know, you had to, you know, had to present a dowry for your, for, to purchase a wife. And so on the island, a, real, a good wife, you know, would make, cost you two cows. You know, bad one, one cow. Maybe even a pig. But... Good wife, two cows. Great wife, three cows. Unheard of for anyone to pay four cows for a wife. So one day this man, the richest man on the island, shows up at this worthless man's door. And he knocks on his door. He comes to the door and he said, you have a daughter that I want to marry. And the guy said, I have a daughter you want to marry? He said, yes. And he said her name. 
And this girl was all disheveled. She hair in her face, dirty, didn't dress well, didn't present herself well, hung her head down because of the shame of the abuse that she had endured at the hands of her father. And he said, her, that's the one I want right there. I've seen her around the island. I want to purchase her. And the father just laughed and he said, what are you willing to give for her? He said, five cows. Instantly making this worthless man one of the wealthiest men on the island. And the guy said, you're joking. He said, I'm not joking. I brought him with me. He said, good. She's yours. Took the daughter, gave him the five cows, walked away. A couple of years later, the worthless man, it bothered him that the man had paid five cows. He didn't understand it. So he went and visited the home of his daughter and his son-in-law. Knocked on the door. The door opened. Gorgeous, beautiful, stately woman is standing there, his daughter. She's gorgeous. She's radiant. She's confident. Her head is up, looking him in the eye. She invites him in. He comes in, stays a while, small talks with his daughter and her husband. And finally, he turns to the husband when the daughter walks out of the room and says, I have been tormented for two years. I do not understand why in the world that you came to my home. You knew you could purchase her for one cow. You knew you could have her for less. I do not understand why you would ever pay five cows for my daughter, and I just need you to tell me why. And the man looked at the father, and he smiled, and he said, Since I was a little boy, I made my mind up. I would never marry less than a five-cow woman. In his home, because he valued her, and he saw beyond the exterior, and he was willing to invest anything to have her, in spite of what he could have paid, he paid what her true value was. And in his home, she became radiant. It's interesting, First Corinthians 11 says, man is the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Man reflects the God he chooses. Women reflect the husbands they choose. And in this man's home, she became glorious. He saw beyond the hurt, beyond the pain, beyond the exterior, and was willing to give anything. But in the home of her father, she was beaten down and abused because he didn't see her as worth more than one cow. And ladies, excuse me for comparing you to cows and value, but you're priceless. That's the point. And when a man looks at a woman and he sees beyond the pain, beyond the shame, beyond the hurt, and he's willing to give anything that he has, she becomes in his presence. You married somebody messed up. So what are you going to do about it? You've got the anointing of Jesus Christ on you to nourish and cherish your wife until she becomes the glory of God. Every woman has the power to heal every man. Do you realize the same word that's used for Holy Spirit in the Bible is used for women? Helper. God said it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to create a helper for him. That's not demeaning to women. You're being called the same name as God. You're, you're the helper. You're, in, in fact, let me just say this, and, you know, I do believe that women have the nature of the Holy Spirit. You know, I really do. You know, men are supposed to act like Jesus, and women, you know, are called helper. Women are gentle. Women are very in touch with their emotions. You know, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. 
when you're with the Holy Spirit, he puts you in touch with your emotions. Women have a natural inclination to relationships and to God. Women are extremely relational. The Holy Spirit is in our lives constantly trying to build relationships in our lives. Women have the nature of the Holy Spirit. I really believe that. Some guys say, my wife's been trying to be the Holy Spirit for me all my life. You know, that's, that's another story, another sermon. But in this sermon, what I'm saying is, I agree. I believe that women have an anointing of God on them to heal any man. You look at your husband and you see all of his problems because he's messed up. I'm just telling you, if you're telling me today, Jimmy, my husband's messed up. Amen. I know that he's messed up. And so what are you going to do about it? You have the power to heal your husband through your prayers, through your words, through your love, through meeting his needs. And what Satan does is when we get married, he builds all these false expectations in our minds and hearts, believing that we're going to marry somebody, the, we- the wedding's going to fix everything, and it's going to be happily ever after. And then we wake up one morning, we begin to see the, the six significant flaws and problems in our spouse, and we begin to be offended. Satan is the accuser of the brethren right there telling us, you made a mistake, get out of this marriage, and we're dying of a broken heart, and finally we abandon the marriage out of disappointment. We, we expected more. Jesus began relationships by saying, let me tell you exactly the way it's going to be, and this is the way it's going to be. And if you walk in with this set of expectations, hey, you're going to be a great disciple, we're going to have a great relationship. And I started following Jesus 31 years ago, and I'm just telling you, he's a wonderful God. He's never disappointed me. Let me, let me ask you this question, by the way. Did all of your problems go away the day you got saved? Of course not. But you met your healer. Life is a healing journey. When you walk with Jesus, when you bring your problems before him and you're not ashamed, he's not ashamed of you. And when you bring your problems before Jesus, he'll heal anything. He'll minister to anything. All your problems don't go away, but you met your healer. And the longer you walk with your healer, the better life gets. All of your problems did not go away the day you got married. Your wedding was not an operating room that fixed everything when you got married. Your your wedding was the registration desk for the marriage hospital. That's really what it is. It's a good way to look at it. We put you in a special room for the first few weeks just to let you down easy. Then we put you in a real room. I don't, uh, I don't like the way we do weddings, and I've got a couple of suggestions that I want to bring this morning about how we can do weddings a little differently. And these are, you know, all these reality shows on TV. Uh, I'm, I'm suggesting a reality wedding, and just to help people get married with the right expectations. You know, people today get married, and you know, everybody's all dressed up, white gowns, tuxedos, everybody, you know, flowers, candles, pretty, and all that kind of stuff. I, I think it's false advertising. And it just gets everybody set up for disappointment. Here's my suggestion. Every couple that gets married ought to go through some intense counseling before they get married. But the purpose of the counseling isn't to fix them. That'd take too long. The purpose of the counseling is to see how messed up you really are. And then you have to dress accordingly for your wedding. Now, let me, no, let, let me tell you how this works, because I think it'd work real well. The average groom, let's just say, you know, the counselor calls the pastor and says, I've done my analysis on this guy and on this couple, and here's how they're going to dress. So the average guy, we dress him up in a military uniform because his family was an emotional war zone. We tear the sleeves, we tear the legs, we black his eye, break his leg, pour blood all over him. And he's going to stand up during the wedding, you know, just kind of moaning like this. His family all the same way. We're dressing them up the same way, blooding them up, blacking their eyes, breaking their legs. They're going to moan through the entire ceremony. She needs to know what she's getting into. Okay. 
And so this is reality. Now, I'm just saying it's not pretty, but it is reality. His family, they're all beat up and, you know, black and blue and everything and moaning. And so her, you know, they've done an analysis on her. She doesn't come down in a wedding gown. She comes down in a hospital gown, pushing a little IV trolley because her family was an emotional train wreck. And her daddy's going to scoot in his little wheelchair right next to her, bringing her down the aisle. Her family's all down here on hospital beds, on life support, bandages around their head, moaning through the entire ceremony. The pastor who does the service dresses as a terrorist and carries a rifle. Shoots the rifle in the air several times during the service just to set the right atmosphere, and he points the rifle at them as they're saying their vows. I like that. I don't expect it to catch on, but I'm going to say this. I've got a backup plan. My backup plan are some reality vows. Okay, everybody's going to want to dress up for their wedding. Okay, you know, we'll draw dresses and tuxedos and all that stuff. Okay, so that's fine. But here are some vows that I'm going to recommend that, you know, you can say, and if you're about to get married or something like that, hey, you're welcome to these vows. But these are some reality vows. And I think if we said these kinds of vows that we would enter into marriage with so much better of a mindset for it, this is my example. I do solemnly swear to take you as my lifelong patient, to bandage and to medicate you so long as we both shall live. I will love you for richer or poorer, for better or worse, and in sickness or in sickness because you're one sick puppy. And I don't see you getting well anytime soon, though I'm hoping for some improvement today. I realize that the pretty clothes you're wearing here on our wedding day are rented and will be returned. You will probably never look this good again. That's why we're taking so many pictures to preserve this rare moment. I also understand that reality is waiting for me at our hotel room, where tomorrow your morning breath will announce the dawn of our lifelong journey together, and the harsh morning light will reveal the real you. In spite of all of this, I love you with all of my heart, and wholly commit myself to this marriage until death do us part. So help me, God, because I'll need all the help I can get. Okay? Well, you can use those. See, disappointment is the number one reason for divorce. We enter into marriage with all these false expectations, believing that we're going to marry someone who's not messed up and that we don't have to take any responsibility to be God's agent in their lives, to speak destiny to them and to heal them and to love them into healing. Marriage is a healing journey. If we enter into it properly, we understand the mindset by which we succeed. Jesus came and he said, are you ready to give everything you got? You ready for some pain? You ready to build a great, a great tower and spend everything you have in the process? Are you ready to engage an enemy because the minute you get saved, the devil's going to attack you? Are you ready for this? Because if you're ready for this, I'm ready for it. Come on. It's going to be the most wonderful life you've ever lived. It's going to be an adventure and a journey. And if you enter into it properly, man, this thing's going to work. But if you come into my kingdom believing that all your problems are going to go away, oh, are you set up for heartache? And when we get married, we need to understand it is a great endeavor. It is a great battle. It's going to take great investment and some pain. But if we enter in with the right mindset, we can succeed. I love the story of Admiral Jim Stockdale, highest-ranking military officer in the Hanoi Hilton prisoner of war camp in Vietnam from 1965 to 1973. He was tortured over 20 times during those eight years. They had no prisoner uh, rights and no release date. He had absolutely no idea when they were getting out. At one point in time, in addition to being uh, tortured 20 times, he beat himself in the face to keep the North Vietnamese from using him on a propaganda tape. 
they were taking a, a recording of the prisoners and sending back to the United States trying to convince us that they weren't abusing our prisoners and torturing them. He beat himself in the face so they could not use him on camera. He was trying during his entire time in prison camp, he was trying not only to stay alive himself, he was trying to keep everybody else around him alive during that period of time. And he was interviewed by a man named Jim Collins in a book called Good to Great. And when he was asked how he survived, here's what Jim Stockdale said. I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted that not only I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into a defining event in my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. When asked who didn't make it out alive, he replied, the optimist. Oh, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas and Christmas would come and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter and Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving and then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. When he was asked to summarize his faith versus their faith, he said, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with a discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. And when he was asked, what did you say to the prisoners to try to keep them alive? Here's what he said. You're not going to get out by Christmas, but you're going to get out. Deal with it. You're not getting out by Christmas. Don't set yourself up for that. But we're going to get out of this place. Now deal with it. He had two types of people in prison camp dying around him all the time. And the first were the naive pessimists. The naive pessimists were saying, oh, we're going to get out real quick. Oh, everybody stay encouraged. We're about to get out any time. And they died because they kept having disappointments. And there were the hardened pessimists. And the hardened pessimists were those who sat in their cells all day long saying they're going to kill us and torture us to death. We're never getting out alive. And they died. They died because of their cynicism and their unbelief. But the only people who got out were the triumphant realists. And the triumphant realists said this. It's going to be tough. It's going to cost a lot. It's not going to be tomorrow. But we're getting out of this place. And they lived. He lived to tell the story. Two types of people who don't make it in marriage. The naive optimist who come into marriage with a set of very, very naive expectations. They think everything's going to be hunky-dory. They're going to marry somebody who's their soulmate and all good things are going to happen. It's never going to require sacrifice. They don't make it because they die of a broken heart. The other people who don't make it are the hardened pessimists. They don't believe in marriage. They don't think it works anymore. But the people who make it in marriage are the people who enter in and say, It's not going to be easy. (laughs) You're messed up. (laughs) A lot more messed up than I thought. But I thank God he's given me the anointing to heal you. Let's make this a healing journey. Let's understand what we're about to get into. And let's commit the rest of our lives to investing in this relationship. Enduring anything we must endure. Everything's not going to be okay tomorrow, but it's going to be okay. And we're going to make it. Welcome to paradise. Stand with me if you would. Bow your heads with me. If you're there with your spouse, would you just put your arm around each other there? If you're there by yourself, don't put your arm around anybody, please. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for these precious couples. And Lord, I just know that there's a reason why you put them together. 
And I'm asking today, God, for the anointing of Jesus on their marriage. Their disappointments, their hurts, the things that the devil has tried to do in their lives, I just bind it in the name of Jesus. And I pray, God, right now, that their marriage would change today forever. That they wouldn't attack each other. That they would love each other and heal each other. Father, I pray right now for a destiny on them. That you would use them, God, for a great purpose. That's why they're married. That you would, that you would right now put a sense of calling on them to live for something greater than themselves. And whatever cost there is to pay the price to serve Jesus and to love each other. And I bless them today. I bless them today, Father, in the name of Jesus. And for every single person here who desires to get married. that this person is going to be imperfect they're going to have problems but i pray god that you would bring them someone that would fulfill their hearts and prepare them in the meantime to be a good steward with that man or woman you're going to bring to them and i just pray god your blessing on this church on these precious people here this morning encourage them meet their needs heal their bodies supply their financial needs bless their families and their marriages their children their jobs their education I just pray, Lord, that they would leave here this morning with the anointing of God all over them to go out and to minister to other people. And I pray that, Father, in Jesus' name.